Thank you, Dean, and thank you, ladies, for your testimony. It's great to hear what God's doing amongst us and in our midst and what he's putting on your heart, and it's an encouragement to share that with others. And even for you moms that think, well, what, you know, what, what can I do? And, and it's just a neat example for moms to see what they can do in their lives to reach out and, uh, and uh, their community and, and to show the love of Christ in, in, uh, in this community. So that's great. Thank you, guys. Thank you for sharing that. Well, parenting is hard, isn't it, parents? It's a tough job. And, and as many of you guys know, we have a little two-year-old we call the terrorizer, Ella Grace. And she, uh, this uh, past week, had a interesting experience. My wife had an interesting experience with her. She, uh, she was demanding that she should have syrup. So she was ranting around, Mom, I need syrup. I need it. And Sue's busy, and she's on the phone. She's like, just a minute, Ella, just a minute. No, I need it. And so Sue's distracted, and she's doing her stuff. And so Ella takes things into her own hands. She goes into the uh, cupboard, twirls it around, finds the syrup. It's right in hand's distance, and starts pouring it out into the carousel, putting her hand in the syrup and eating it. And just as Sue turned around and looked, she's like, Ella, oh my gosh, have you lost your mind? And Ella's response defiantly, I'm not lost your mind, I'm Ella Grace. <laughs> so that's what we get to deal with. Welcome to our world. So for you guys that have two-year-olds, you know they like to pull stunts like that. And many of your parents are in here. And it's a tough job. We're uh, always worried. We're always anxious about our children. I mean, we hear about these school shootings and Recently, we've heard reports from my middle school daughter about girls cutting themselves in middle school and about drinking in middle school and inappropriate sexual behavior. And so we're very anxious. I mean, as parents, it, it's anxiety seems to rule our day. I know for me, even this week, I had a real stressful week. And some one of the nights this week, I just woke up in the middle of the night. I felt like some 300-pound dude was on my chest. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I was, I was just freaking out. I couldn't barely breathe. And so I just <sighs> relaxed and tried to take some deep breaths. There's no 300-pound dude on me. It's just a little anxiety, you know. And, and we all deal with anxiety and, and that just fear and that worrisomeness and in our lives, there are so many things to worry about, our kids, our jobs, our finances. You know, and worry and, and anxiety really is just that feeling of being out of control, right? We're just not in control of everything. And if we could, we'd, we'd have a webcam where we could be right near our child all the time and see everything they're doing. That'd probably make us feel a little bit better, but then we'd have to get there right away when something happens. So there's still that anxiety, and it's just that... Lack of control, right, that, that anxiety comes from. But we know only one person or one thing is in control of all things, right? And that's God. He's in control of all things. And so anxiety is really just a lack of trust in God. And no matter what's going to happen, God is in control and he's going to do what is good and perfect through those things. And so a good thing to do is that I was doing when I was feeling anxious was to meditate on the Psalms. And Psalm 139 came to, to mind. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See, God knows we all deal with anxiety. And there was another man that dealt with anxiety quite a bit, and his name was Paul. 
The Apostle Paul was very anxious. He was very concerned. He was deeply concerned for the church in Corinth. And we know about his physical struggles. We've all heard about how he was beaten, how he was stoned, and how he was imprisoned. And last week, Dean brought us into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And in verse 5, it kind of delves into that physical and then goes over to his emotional struggles. Verse 5 says that he was afflicted on every side. He had conflicts without, yet he had fears within. So his fear and his concern, his anxiety was all about this one church in Corinth. This one church in Corinth was giving him a lot of trouble. And as we know that uh, from our study in First and Second Corinthians, that, that, that Paul and Titus and some other companions of his started this church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very worldly city, very cosmopolitan, but it was very decadent. It's like modern-day Las Vegas. And so Paul, it was a great place to plant a church, right? Paul plants a church there right next to the temple. And he um, was there around 18 months. And he saw a lot of people come to Saving Faith in Christ. And it was an exciting time. He developed a lot of close relationships throughout that time. And then God moved him on to do the same work throughout Europe. Yet while he was away, these, these false apostles came in to the church and they eroded away everything that Paul did. They, they attacked Paul's character. They attacked his integrity. And everything he did was going away. And so Paul said, yeah, I got to go back. I got to go back to this church in Corinth and try to make things right. <clears throat> so he comes back and it was a bad visit. It's probably one of the lowest points in Paul's ministry is he went back there and, and he, he called them back to, to God, called them back to Christ to repent, to turn from these false apostles and to remember the teachings that, that he and Titus gave. And they rejected him. They rejected him. They said, no, we're going to go with these guys, Paul. You're, we, don't, we don't want to follow you anymore. And so he was deeply hurt, deeply concerned. I'm sure anxiety and depression kind of followed. Those emotions just led after this time. So God put on his heart to write a harsh letter back to him. We don't have this letter, but it's known as the severe letter or the harsh letter. And he, he wrote this back to the church in Corinth. And that's kind of where we are today is we... Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he started talking about this severe letter and, and the whole circumstances around it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says this. He says, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress of anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Last week, Dean talked about, in the weeks past, he talked about the love that Paul had for this church in Corinth. Though they, they didn't accept him in, though they rejected him, he still loved him. He had deep concern for these folks. So we see in 2 Corinthians now, what Paul did is he, take, he took a break. He took a parenthetical break, really, between chapter 2 and chapter 7. And in the, in the other chapters in between, he talked about some theological issues. He talked about the new covenant. He talked about reconciliation. And he talked about being unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. So now in chapter 7, 
he brings us back into the, the discussion about how to reconcile, how he goes about reconciling and restoring his relationship with this church in Corinth. It's really an appeal for reconciliation or an attempt by Paul to make things right with the church in Corinth. We see that throughout the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. He uses phrases like, wide open your hearts to us. Receive us. Bring us in. Show us your love. In Amos chapter 3, it says, can two come together unless they agree? I mean, isn't that true? You can't come together. You can't have reconciliation and restoration until there's some sort of agreement, right? And uh, we were talking in a community group. Janelle Willis talked about how in the justice system, the juvenile justice system, they've been under the punitive way of giving punishment to these juveniles for years, and they see that it's just not working. And so now they're trying to see some reconciliation or some restoration, because isn't that best? I mean, even in the outside world with non-believers, it's best that there is some sort of reconciliation between the victim and the criminal, especially for a young juvenile. There has to be some meeting of amends because for the victim and the victim's family, there's got to be deep hurt and resentment. And for the child, it's just bearing on them their whole life, maybe the sense of guilt for what they did. And so I hope God to God that kind of thing works and that we came to see people know Christ perhaps through that. That's the only way that true reconciliation and repentance can occur. So if the Corinthians would only cleanse their lives and God would receive them and they again would gain fellowship again with Paul and Titus. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk and look about how this relationship is restored. And this is a great example for us. It's so practical about when there's a relationship you have that's severed by sin. How do you bring about that reconciliation? How do you bring about that restoration? And so we're really going to talk about just two things today, two words. And the first one is sorrow. Sorrow. And the second one is repentance. So we're just going to look at those two main things today, and it's a great practical application for our lives. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. And if you have a... If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some black Bibles scattered about, and it's on one page. It's on page 143. We should have it up on the screen as well. So, if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word, I'll read it out loud, and you just read it along silently. All right, let's look starting in verse eight. For though I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that. That letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent 
in the matter. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and that your word does not come back void. Lord, I pray that I'd be true to your word today and that um, your word would impact our heart. Lord, that it would cut both bone and marrow and soul and spirit and it pierce into our hearts and, and we'd see true change, a true repentant change in our lives that would occur every day. That it wouldn't just be a one-time thing, but Lord, that it'd be every day we would repent of our sin and we would turn to you, turn to the grace of God and, and be filled with your spirit daily because it takes your grace and your spirit to accomplish true, genuine repentance in our lives every day. Lord, I thank you for this time that you've set aside. I pray that you would put aside all the distractions in our heart and our mind that, that wanders away, that our thoughts may wander to, but that you would just help us to focus on your word that we would learn from you and what you have to say to us. So, Lord, get me out of the way and put you on display that uh, we may feel the grace and the power of God dwell within us today. In your name, amen. All right, you may have a seat. Well, what I'd like to do is um, kind of jump over those first five verses or so, jump over and, and go into verse 12 through 16 real quickly. Because I think 12 through 16 kind of help us paint the picture or the context of what's going on and what's happening with this harsh letter and how the Corinthians are dealing with it and how Paul is dealing with it. So if you would, turn down and look down to verse 12 with me. Verse 12 says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended. So who is he talking about here? Who's the one that was offended? Well, if you look back into chapter 2, he talks about that a little bit, that someone in the church body in Corinth really offended him. And this most likely could be in a very close friend, maybe one of the first people that came to Christ in Corinth, maybe even one of the leaders in the church. And that when he went back to visit there, this guy denied him. He said, I'm not going to follow you, Paul. And he, he, he rejected him. And so I'm sure Paul is very offended by that. And so that's who the person probably is that was the offender. And, and Paul, of course, is the one who was offended. But he didn't write this letter. He didn't write this harsh letter for this certain person or even himself. Let's look what he wrote it for. But he wrote it for that your earnestness or the whole church body's earnestness on your behalf might be known to you in the sight of God. So he wrote this letter so that he could see things happen and get back into a right relationship between Paul and Titus and the church in Corinth. That God could see that true change in their life. That's why he wrote this letter. In verse 13 it says, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced in even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you. So, he, what happened here is that um, Paul was in Macedonia and he sent his good friend Titus back to the church in Corinth. And you can imagine their last visit wasn't very good. So I'm sure Titus is like, you want me to go back there? Are you serious? You remember what happened last time? We, we were not welcomed. We were booted out of there. We had to sleep on the street. We had no meal to eat. So I'm going to have to go all the way down here from Macedonia to Corinth and probably have no, you know, no way of getting a food or a place to stay or anything. Are you sure about this, Paul? Yeah, I'm sure. You need to go, Titus. 
So he's probably dreading this, right? He's got to go back to Corinth, and the last visit wasn't so good. But what happened? What happened? We see that he wasn't, he was brought in. He was comforted, and Paul feels comfort from that. He was brought into the church in Corinth. And not only was he brought in and comforted, it says here that he was refreshed. He was refreshed by his visit. You know, I heard a saying from my sister-in-law. She says that house guests are like fish. You guys heard that one? After three days, they begin to smell. <laughs> so I hope we're not that kind of house guest. The, the church in Corinth, Titus wasn't that kind of house guest. He, in fact, he was refreshed. So as believers, we want to be refreshing people, refreshing one another with our visits when we're with each other. So look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. So what's happening here is Paul gambled. He rolled the dice. He said, okay, Titus, I know you don't want to go down there. I know you think you're going to get rejected because that's what happened last time. But Titus, Titus, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to bet you anything. They are going to accept you this time. They are going to bring you in this time. And so really his integrity with, with Titus was kind of put on the line. He's like, man, I know it. I know this harsh letter produced repentance in them. And I know they're going to accept you in. So he took a gamble, and that gamble paid off. That boasting about the church in Corinth paid off. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 14. In verse 15, it says, His, infection, his affection, or, or Titus's affection, abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Isn't that true, parents? When, when your child obeys you, Boy, you just the love you have for them and the connection you have with them grows. That's what happens with Titus here. You know, they obeyed, they repented, and, and there was a, that relationship was restored, and his affection for them grew all the more. And I can imagine Titus coming into the church, and before he knocks on the door, he's probably shaken. He's like, oh my gosh, oh God, I don't want to do this. But he knocks on the door. And he was in fear and trembling. And what this says here was the opposite was even more true. That the church in Corinth, the folks there were in fear and trembling of Titus coming back. Not because of Titus. Not so much because of Paul. But because of reverence to God. That they knew Paul and Titus were messengers of God and his truth and his message. So they received Titus in with fear and trembling for reverence for his position as a messenger of the gospel. And finally, verse 16 says, I, Paul, rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So because of their obedience and repentance, Paul could rejoice for a time. He was anxious. He was distressed. He was concerned about this church. But now we see he looks back on that time of anxiety and depression and struggle and concern. Now he looks back and he rejoices because of what the Corinthians did. And Dean talked about that word in in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, they had an overwhelming joy, an overflowing joy. That's the kind of joy that Paul was experiencing that he wants all believers to have. The cup was overflowing with joy. So let's look back now at verses 8 through 11. Let's look at 8 through 11. You know, really the first thing I want to talk about is sorrow. Sorrow. In verse 8, we see that Paul is really wrestling with this harsh letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. 
He knew the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had put it on his heart to write this letter, yet he knew that there could potentially be some severed relationships, right? People could be very hurt by this letter, and he knew they'd be hurt. And maybe their relationships or their friendship that he had with these people could be lost forever. And so he struggled with that, right? We see in verse 8 that he regretted it. It says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. So I'm sure he wrote this and he was like, man, should I write this or should I not, God? You know, he's wrestling with this. God put this on his heart to write this letter, but he's going back and forth. Oh, man, I might lose him forever. God, and that, that's, a, that's a scary thing to have. But God put it on his heart to write that. And so he had to be obedient to the prompting of the Spirit in his heart, and he had to write this harsh letter. And he had to trust God that it would do the work of repentance in the church in Corinth. Have you ever been put in that position? Have you ever been in that position where God puts something on your heart and you have to go to somebody and confront them with something really difficult, some some sin in their lives? I know for Dan and I, we had that this week. We Dan called me up and said, hey, there's a, there's a couple and they're really struggling and, and I think we need to go meet with them. And God confirmed that in my heart. Yeah, you're right. I believe we do. We need to go meet with them. And though we didn't want to, in our flesh there was no way we did not want to go talk to this couple. God had prompted our heart that we had to do it. And we had to say some pretty tough stuff to these guys. But he prompted our heart to do it and we had to be obedient to that call. And we hope that repentance will occur in their hearts. So Paul wrote the harsh letter. At first he regretted it. And later he did not, though it says. God gave him peace about it. He knew it would hurt them and make them sorrowful, and yet this sorrow would lead them to repentance. So let's take a deeper look at this word sorrow. What does this word sorrow mean? Well, sorrow means an inner grief, an inner turmoil. It means remorse or sadness. And there's really a truth that goes along with it, that sin should always lead us to sorrow. Sin should always lead us to sorrow. And there's no greater example of this than Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, are, they're in the Garden of Eden, and they eat this, the forbidden fruit. And what happens? What happens right after they eat it? What do they realize? They're naked. They never knew that before. Now they're naked, and, and following knowing they're naked, what happened after that? They're ashamed. They never had these emotions before. They never had that emotion of sadness and sorrow in the Garden. So I'm sure that after God applied these curses to each one of them and banished them from the Garden of Eden into the cold, cruel world, they were really feeling sorry for themselves. And that sorrow and that sadness had to overcome them. And, and then they were reaping the consequences of their sin. So another truth you can write down, write down that sin should always lead to sorrow and also write down that there are always consequences to sin. There are always consequences to sin. And Adam and Eve definitely knew those consequences, didn't they? They had all the things they could they wished for in the Garden of Eden. No pain, no sadness, no sorrow. And now, what, what happened to Eve? She has pain and childbearing. What happened to, to Adam? Well, now he had to work. He couldn't just pick it off of a tree. He had to work for his food. He had to toil and he had to sweat. So he had consequences to his sin. 
Another consequence to sin is guilt. Right? When we sin, we feel guilty, especially as believers. But it's true for everyone. God has hardwired into our conscience this feeling of guilt. He's hardwired it in. So when we do wrong, when we disobey, we feel guilty. Now, if you see people that don't feel guilty, or if you're one of those people that doesn't feel guilty after you sin, what's been going on? That you've been just continuing in that sin over and over again, repeatedly, and you've hardened or seared your conscience. And now that guilt is what came away because your conscience has become seared. Believer, we don't want to go there. We don't want to be in that place where we... Our, don't feel guilt for our sin, where we don't feel sorrow for our sin. We want to move towards God in those things. So let's look at two types of sorrow. There are two types of sorrow that verse 10 talks about. The first type of sorrow is godly sorrow. There's godly sorrow with no regret that leads to salvation. And then there's worldly sorrow that has regret and that leads to death. Romans chapter 6 says, so the wages of sin is death. And there's a great example of comparing and contrasting worldly and godly sorrow in Peter and Judas, right? You guys all know the story of Peter and Judas, and Judas especially is a well-known betrayer. Before that time, though, Judas was a close friend of Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples, And yet Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27 talks, 26 and 27, they talk about the account. And and then after betraying Jesus with a kiss, and he felt sorrowful. And in Matthew 27, it talks about how he did it and then how he, he just was sorrowful about this. He was saddened about it. It said he had deep remorse. And so what did he do? He went back to the Pharisees and said, man, I don't want your blood money. And he threw it back at them. He didn't want it. He just wanted to rid himself of that. And then what did he do after that? Did he run back to the feet of Christ and beg for forgiveness? I wish he did. Because you know Christ would have forgave him. And that would have been the greatest act of grace I'm sure this world had ever seen. The betrayer of Christ that led him to the cross. I know Christ would have forgave him of that. But no, he had worldly sorrow. He had deep regret. And what did that lead him to? Let him to death. Let him to hang himself in the potter's field. Now in contrast to that, we have Peter, right? Peter, boldly stating, Oh, Jesus, I will never deny you. (laughs) I'm Peter, come on, look at me. I'm the man, right? Jesus said, sorry, Peter, you're not going to deny me once. You're going to deny me three times. Peter's probably like, no, there's no way. I'm going to deny you three times. But what happened? Denied him. Not once, not twice. Three times. He denied the Lord. If we look in... Matthew chapter 26 and and at verse 75, it says, When he denied him the third time, that Peter wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He was overcome with sorrow for his sin and denying the Lord. He wept bitterly. 
And unlike Judas, Peter's sorrow led him back to Jesus. Because Peter had a godly sorrow that led him to repentance. Judas had the worldly sorrow that led to regret and then even death. Yet Peter had godly sorrow, which has no lasting regret. And leads to repentance back to Jesus, back to the throne of grace where there's forgiveness. I can think of many people we've met in our lives that have both these kind of sorrows. And one in particular, I remember when Sue and I were just Christians, that we led a marriage study in our home. And one of Sue's co-workers was in this study, and their marriage was really struggling, and we tried to tried to help them, tried to work things out. And at one point, the, the one gal just said, you know, is there a way I can just stay somewhere else? I'm going to just move out. And it came to that point, and we're like, well, it just so happens we have a condo, and it's open just for a little while. You can, you can stay there, but we really want you back in the home. So we let her stay in our condo. And then she was there, I don't know, about a month or so, and we got word back that she was having an affair with this guy. And it really saddened us. And this was one of those another hard situations that God had put on our heart. We had to talk to this gal, and we had to confront her with this. So we brought her over to our house, and we sat her down, and, and we say, we said, you know, we love you, and we want your marriage to work, but we've heard that you're having this affair, and you know, we really can't have you staying in our condo. We just can't have you staying there anymore. And she was deeply saddened. She was sobbing because she saw the consequences of her sin. And she wept and wept. And so we shared the gospel and that God would forgive her. And we just wanted her to repent from that, turn from being with this guy and restore her back with her husband. And she agreed, yeah, yes, you're right. I got to do that. Yes, yes. And we left from that time knowing that there are two sorrows. And it was only a matter of time to see which one she actually had that time. And it was sad to find out that she had worldly sorrow. Because she ended up leaving her husband and marrying the man she had an affair with. This world is sad. It's a sad world. There's a lot of sad people in this world. You know, it used to be wonderful and blissful and, and everything was happy in the Garden of Eden until, boom, Sin happened. Till that point, Adam and Eve probably never experienced the emotion of sadness or grief or sorrow. Now, because of sin, we all do. It's, it's tremendously sad to, to see a child die of cancer or some incurable disease. It's tremendously sad to, to hear about these car bombings every day, this gang violence, these school shootings. Yeah, many people are like Judas they are so overcome by their worldly sorrow that their only choice is to kill themselves. And we see that every time in these school shootings or these guys, that young men that go on shooting rampages. What does it always end in? It typically ends in them killing themselves because they're deeply saddened and sorrowful for what they see, the consequences that their sin has done. I find it even sadder to see Christians, followers of Jesus Christ that have this kind of sorrow, that are sorrowful for their sin all the time, that live in regret all the time. You know, we should not be there. Brothers and sisters of Christ, we should not be there. God says that godly sorrow will lead us to repentance and there should be no regret. 
We need to move on towards repentance. Now, there's a parody in life, right? Wherever there's a Judas, there's a Peter, thank God. And on the cross with Jesus, there were two criminals, and there was one that exhibited worldly sorrow, and there was another one that exhibited godly sorrow. For the criminal that exhibited worldly sorrow, what happened? You know, he mocked Christ, and and his eyes got gouged out, and he died. And for the, the man, the other criminal on the cross, he, he said, Jesus, oh, when you enter your kingdom, I want to be there. And what did Jesus say to him? For today I will see you in paradise. Today I see you in paradise. And there was another woman that had a great godly sorrow. She's in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 talks about a man named Simon who was a Pharisee and he had invited Jesus over to dinner. Yet he didn't invite him in as, as an as a honored guest. He didn't invite him in under the traditional way you have guests to dinner. He didn't clean his feet. He didn't anoint his head with oil. I think he was just there to try to pin something on Jesus to, to get him some way to, that they could crucify him. But there was another lady that came who was a sinner. And she was a woman who was a prostitute and she came into that house and and she had deep sorrow. So much sorrow that her tears just flooded out of her eyes and poured onto Jesus' feet. They poured onto Jesus' feet and she rubbed his feet with the tears. And if that wasn't enough, she took her expensive perfume and she anointed his feet with perfume and rubbed those. She had godly sorrow. And in the end of chapter 7, Jesus talks about, he gave a parable about, uh, about two debtors. And he talked to Simon. He said, you know, Simon, there's two debtors and one has a lot of money and one doesn't have much. And, and, and they forgave him. This man forgave him of both of those debts. Simon, who do you think would love this man more. Well, it's easy, right? It's the guy who owed more money. Jesus said, you're right. Judge correctly. You see this woman here, Simon? Verse 47 says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, she had godly sorrow. The letter to repentance, letter to the feet of Christ. And that's where we need to go when we have sorrow over our sin. We should lead us to the feet of Christ. So sorrow really only accomplishes two things. One, you can be sorry for your sin and you can go out and have a pity party about your sin and, and the consequences that are left. You start blaming others. And being regretful, but that's not going to lead you anywhere. Or two, you can be like this woman where you have godly sorrow. You can acknowledge your sin and even so much how much it is. You acknowledge your sin and turn back to God. And that's called repentance. So let's look at repentance now. What is repentance? Well, let's first look at what it's not. What is repentance not? Well, there's a religious phrase called penitence. You maybe have heard before. And it's about paying back, paying for forgiveness. And this was happened in the ancient world a lot, where they had to pay for their sins. They'd have to even do indulgences to pay back. 
And it's even crept into modern religion in, in a list of do's and don'ts. Well, if you do all these things and you don't do all these things, then okay, then after you've done all that, you're forgiven. That's not true repentance. And true repentance is also not a one-time event. Though it's necessary for salvation, John the Baptist called people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But in in order to be a follower of Christ, right, we need to repent. We need to do a first-time act of repentance. We need to stop living our lives for ourselves. We need to do a U-turn and start living our life for Christ. We need to put our faith and trust in Him alone. Because He died on the cross as a payment for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And we have to put our faith and trust in Him alone. And that's that first-time act of repentance. Repentance really means, though, is change. Change. True repentance is a complete change of heart and of mind. It's a change of life. It's a turning from sin towards holiness. A lot of the political banners you see now have in huge letters, change, right? That's the big buzzword in politics now is change. Well, I think it should change to repent. How about that? Think all those guys are going to put repent on there? I'll I'll blog their website. Put repent on your sign. You think they'll get elected? I doubt it. (laughs) I don't think they'll get elected. You know, the change these guys are talking about, it may appear like change, but I guarantee you, it's very minor. It's a minute type of change. It's not the change that, that the guys were just talking about. Repentance is a complete change. It's complete. It's throughout your whole body, a complete change of heart, mind, soul, spirit, everything. It's a spiritual event, what repentance is. And it's not just a one-time event. It's, it's a daily thing. So in, in order to completely change, we must show signs of repentance. Paul told King Agrippa in the crowd that was there in Acts chapter 26, while he was giving his testimony, he said this, In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, he said, They, you all, should repent and turn to God. And then a great phrase after that, he says, that you should perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Right there, that's saying that's a continual process. Right? It's not a one-time event. It's continual. You should be performing deeds appropriate with repentance. And in Matthew chapter 8, John the Baptist, after saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, later on he says this, he says, you should produce or bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is probably some of the first time they'd heard about repentance. And he was calling them to repent, to turn from themselves and live to God. But don't make it just today, guys. Don't make it just today. Make it every day, every day of your life. You should turn back to God. There's a great quote by L.R. Shelton that I found about true biblical repentance. It says, true biblical repentance is a deep desire to be finished with sin because it is the plague and sorrow of our heart. A deep desire to abstain from lustly fleshly lusts which war against our soul. A desire to fight the good fight of faith. A deep desire never to go back to a way of self-will and self-pleasing, but to show forth the praises of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's a deep desire to follow the Lord in a path of holiness all the days of our life. 
It's a deep desire to please Him in all of our ways. The deep desire to judge ourselves before Him every day and to live at His feet with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to look different. We need to look different every day. As we dredge old things up from the past, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of those things. And as they come back up, we need to repent of those. And most importantly, we need to take steps that lead to repentance. I know for me, uh, uh, I came to faith in Christ at about 30 years old. And I did that one time U-turn. I, I turned from living my life for myself and I put my faith in Christ alone. And, and I was a very selfish person. I was living for myself and I turned and started living to God. And yeah, I stumbled along the way, but now my focus was not on myself, but on God. Yet, some of those old sins, they still are there and they still come in and the sin of the world is still there. And so I needed to take daily steps of repentance. And around five years ago, I never had struggled with internet pornography. And I started to struggle with it. And so I needed to take steps. I needed to take steps of action quick. And so I told the pastor board, I told people, I told my wife, people I was accountable to. And I locked down every computer I had. I put filters security blocks, accountability software. I didn't care how slow it made my computer. I wanted it out of my life. I took steps that were appropriate with repentance. So men, if you are in that, and many men are, even Christian men are struggle with that, take steps appropriate with repentance. Talk to someone you're close to. Talk to your wife. Come talk to us. Come talk to the pastors. I've been there. Many of us have been there. It's not a thing. You're not alone in this sin. We need to take steps appropriate to repentance. And for women, now a lot of women are, are consumed with the way they look and, and they live lives consumed with the way they look and so they go work out at nauseam and some of them are in and they, they want to look so good that they alter their eating and they don't eat or they eat and they throw it all up. There's a lot of women that struggle with that. If you're in that boat, talk to your husband. Talk to someone close to you. There are ways to get out of that. Take steps appropriate for repentance and change. Now, repentance really is an act of God, right? It's a it's, it's the, by the grace of God that we can turn from these things and have a heart to be back to God. It's only by His Spirit that we can come into a close relationship with Him. God's grace, He will give you forgiveness and pour it out to you. But He doesn't want you to continue on sinning. I know for me, I get in this really bad cycle that, oh, I've been good for a long time. I've been doing a lot of good things. Well, maybe I'll just do one bad thing. You know? No. No. He doesn't want you to go down that path. He wants you to stay close to Him. Okay, We cannot atone for our sin. Guys, we can't. I know we try all the time. We try to atone for our sin by going, okay, I blew it, but man, for the next week or two, I'm, I'm, or, or you could say ultimately, I'm never going to sin again. That's it. You know, I'm never sinning again. I sinned and now I'm done sinning. 
Wake up. We're in this flesh suit. We are going to sin. We can't atone for our sin. We have to go to the throne of grace, to He who forgave us of all sin and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to Him and He will forgive you and He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So we see this pattern in our lives that when we sin, it brings conviction. And from that conviction, that will bring sorrow. And then that sorrow kind of goes two ways, right? It can either go towards the worldly sorrow, which leads to death, or it can go to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and ultimately salvation. Salvation. So let's look at verse 11. Verse 11 is a great verse. It's, it's probably one of the clearest definitions in all of Scripture of what repentance really is. Let's look at verse 11. Take a look with me. It says, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, exclamation point. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So this dives into really seven uh, characteristics, if you will, of what the fruit of repentance looks like. In the church in Corinth, they repented. And Paul documents it here, what that looked like, what characteristics that came out of their true, genuine repentance and the fruit of that repentance. So as I go through these seven characteristics, I want you guys to ask yourselves, personalize each one of these. This happened to the church in Corinth. How does that apply to me? Ask yourselves if these things are true of you. All right. The first one is earnestness. The Corinthians' godly sorrow produced earnestness or an eagerness for righteousness on their part. This earnestness produced a desire to make things right. Do you? Do you have a desire to make things right? When you sin, do you want to make things right? When you have a fight with your spouse, do you you try to, to reconcile and make things right or do you just blow it off? No, that's sometimes happens to Sue and I. Blow it off, man. I just want to deal with this. And what happens is bitterness comes up and frustration and that, that relationship is hindered. So I encourage you guys to go to your husband or wife when you have those fights and reconcile and make things right. God's word says, do not let the sun set on your anger. Don't be angry. Don't let that bitter root take hold. Purge that out. Have short accounts with one another. Confess your sin to one another. Any relationship that is strained like that, make things right. Have an eagerness or earnestness to make things right. The next thing is vindication. Vindication. The, the Corinthians' repentance also produced vindication. Or what this really means is a desire to clear themselves. They want, had a desire to clear themselves of the charges that Paul had laid upon them in the harsh letter. He said, you guys are fallen these false apostles. These guys are teaching lies to you. Remember what we taught you. Remember the truth of the gospel. That's the charge against them. And they didn't accept Paul and and Titus in. He's calling them back to make a right relationship with them. He wanted to, the Corinthians wanted to clear their name though. They wanted to remove the stigma of their sin. They wanted to rid themselves of the guilt because of this hindrance between them and Paul and Titus. They wanted to prove themselves trustworthy. 
And this is really about owning your sin or being specific about your sin. Right? That's why I was specific about it. I'm specific with my accountability partners. I'm specific with you guys. Be specific about your sin. Don't just go, yeah, I sinned and it was some bad stuff. Well, what? All sin is bad stuff. No, be specific about it. That's the way that will lead you to true repentance. Be specific about it and, and own it. Own your sin. I have a brother-in-law who was an alcoholic. He will go out to places and, he's, and they'll say, oh, you want to drink? No, I'm an old alcoholic. He owned his sin. And he was specific about it. And that helped him in repentance. Own your sin. Clear your name. Show the acts of true repentance to show yourself trustworthy to others. That's what the church in Corinth wanted. They wanted vindication for their sin. Next is indignation. This word means anger or annoyance or irritation. The Corinthians were outraged over their sin. They were angry that they had brought shame on themselves. They had offended Paul and they sinned against God. Ask yourself, does sin anger you? And this is not the unrighteous anger. This is the righteous anger like Christ had when he turned the tables over at the temple. Do you have a righteous anger to sin? Are you annoyed and irritated by your sin? I know that's true for me. I get annoyed at myself and irritated at myself for our sin, my sin. Now, of course, we shouldn't stay there. That should be a temporary feeling, but it should probably be there. There should be some annoyance or irritation and anger at our sin. And next is fear. Fear. This is really that reverent fear that we should have for God as judge, as king and judge. We should have a reverent fear for him. I know for me it's, it's, it's convicting because when I'm speeding on the highway, which I never do, but sometimes when I'm speeding and I'm driving back, especially in Windsor, and I'm driving and you see the cop, what happens? <laughs> you have fear, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get a ticket. I'm in big trouble. There's my insurance rate, $100 to go to court. There's fear there. Every time you see that cop, I know I'm, I'm like, no, I hope he doesn't give me a ticket. Well, I wish I had that reverent fear for God every time that I sin. That's what happened to the Corinthians here. The Corinthians had this fear because they knew who God was, that God was judge, and he knew that he would discipline them for their sin. See, sin for the believer will lead to some discipline because God loves you. Just like a loving parent loves their child and disciplines them, God loves you enough to discipline you. So they had a reverent fear for God as judge who would discipline them. Next is a longing, a longing. This is a longing to see this relationship restored. The Corinthians had a longing to see their relationship restored with Paul and Titus. So he wrote this harsh letter, and, and after that time, God worked in their hearts and draw them to himself, and they repented. And following these things, they're like, man, I wish we could see Paul again. Gosh, that, we treated him so badly last time. Oh, I got a longing to see Paul. I have a longing to see Titus and see things restored. Do you have a longing? Do you have a longing in your heart to see relationships restored? Or do you just burn bridges and go, oh, that's done. That relationship's over. Or do you have a longing to see relationships in your life restored? That's an act, a fruit of true repentance. Lastly, avenging of wrong. If, if you're truly repentant, will you have a strong desire to make restitution for your wrongs? 
the things, the sins you've committed? Do you want to seek restitution for those wrongs that you've committed? Or conversely, are you more interested in protecting yourself than accepting the consequences of your sin? There's a great example of this. Put that slide up of Zacchaeus. You guys all in Bible study and Sunday school are probably teaching about right now. Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Heard the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We got a two-year-old. She has Bible songs, and we get to hear that ten times a day. It's fabulous. But remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And he was a chief sinner. In fact, the religious elite tagged him as that. Yeah, he's the worst because he's the chief tax collector. He takes our money, and he takes tons on top of that to line his pockets. He is the chief of all sinners. And we know in, in Luke chapter 19 is a great story about Zacchaeus, that Zacchaeus knew he was a sinner. And he had a heart to make things right, didn't he? Man, he wanted to be forgiven. He wanted to have his life changed. And there's a huge crowd around. Now, there's the huge crowd around. Jesus is always following Jesus around. And tons of people are always around him. And poor little Zacchaeus, he's a wee man. He can't get in there. He's going to get trampled. So what does he do? Goes up on the tree. Goes up on that tree. And goes, hey, Jesus. Hey, how's it going? What does Jesus do? Hey, sinner. See you later. The chief sinner. Blow that dude off. No. Of course not. Jesus sees Zacchaeus and the smile on his face and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm sure the crowd was aghast. What? That guy? Do you know who that guy is, Jesus? He's the worst. He is the worst. He takes our money. Man, he is horrible. Are you going to go to that guy's house? What about me? I'm not that bad. No, I'm going to his house today. And that really, that invitation there to go to his house is just an invitation for Zacchaeus to get to know Jesus, to dine with Jesus. And like the the prostitute, to be at his feet and know the forgiveness of Christ. And so Zacchaeus shows in a tremendous act of repentance that is just such an awesome example of avenging the wrongs that he committed. What does Zacchaeus do? He's taken all this money from people. Money is a big problem in his life. So his act of true repentance and showing the deeds inappropriate with repentance, what does he do? Takes half he owns and what? Gives it to the poor. I'm sure all his tax collector friends are like, what? Half your money to the poor? And he's like, wait just a minute guys, I'm not done. Half to the poor and every person I have wronged, everyone that I've taken and overtaxed money from, I'm going to give them four times as much as I overtaxed them. I'm sure his tax collector friends were like, I can't, there's no way we can do that. You know, oh my gosh, that's just incredible. What an awesome act of repentance. He knew that money was an issue for him. And he wanted to rid himself of it. I don't think Zacchaeus really cared if he had a darn cent left. He had such a, such a burden in his heart, such deep sadness and sorrow for his sin. Such regret for what he did and how he hurt other people. Money was an issue and he didn't want anything part of it. He wanted to rid himself. He wanted to avenge every wrong that he ever did. 
So today, in conclusion, have you shown the fruit of repentance? Have you shown the fruit of a, an eagerness to make things right, a vindication to clear your name, to, uh, owning your sin, being specific about your sin? Do you have anger towards your sin? Do you have fear and reverence to God? Do you have a longing to see relationships restored that you've, you've hurt? Do you have a zeal or a desire to pursue holiness and righteousness and purity? Do you have a zeal in your heart towards repentance by confessing your sin and, and going to the throne of grace of God and making things right every day? It's a daily thing, guys. It's every day. It's not a one-time deal. It has to happen every Monday morning, every Tuesday morning, every day of the week, every Sunday morning. You have to go to God and repent and turn to Him. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus admonishes the church in in Ephesus. This church in Ephesus was a great church and they did a lot of great things, but they didn't do one thing. And In verse 4 it says, You did a lot of things, guys, but yet I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from your place. Believer, do you remember your first love? Do you remember when you first felt the grace of God to come upon you and forgive you for your sin? Do you remember that time? Go back to that time. Repeatedly. Remember your first love. Show the fruit of repentance. This can't be from your own self attempts to be right with God. Remember, you cannot atone for your sin. You can't just go down this checklist and go, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. No. No, you got to go before the, the throne of grace. And go before God every day and say, God, I am a sinner and I'm in need of you today. Lord, open my heart to, to sin in my life. Help me to be angry with it. Help me to be specific about it. Help me to confess it. Help me to be right with you every day. Turn from those things. This is a call for us to remember our first love. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for your word that is just penetrating in my heart in a deep way. I hope it penetrates all of our hearts here today. And then... We would know what true, genuine repentance is. Call us to repent, to come to know you. And if there's people here today that don't know you, I would pray that, pray that they would we, we repent the first time. They would do that first time act of repentance. They would turn from living their life for themselves and they would turn and put their faith and trust in you and you alone. Because you and you alone are the only one they can forgive our sin. You forgave Zacchaeus' sin. You forgave the prostitute's sin. You for, even would have forgiven Judas' sin if you would asked. So Lord, help them ask. Help them ask. Help them not live in worldly sorrow, but live in godly sorrow. Help them not to live in regret and guilt, but know that you have washed away the guilt of their sin. Help them to dwell in your grace, in your mercy, and in your love. In your name, amen.